Did you just name drop Jesus Christ like you know a guy who knows a guy? I do know a guy who knows a guy. You're listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the TV that we're obsessed with. Right now, we're watching American Gods. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm your host, and I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor. And this week, we have a special double header episode for you. First up, I'm going to be talking to Ars Technica senior editor Lee Hutchinson, who's a gun aficionado and has a lot of thoughts about the representation of Vulcan in this episode. In the second half, our special correspondent Genevieve Valentine had a chance to sit down with two of the actors from the series. First, she talks to Orlando Jones, who did an amazing job playing Mr. Nancy or a Nancy. And then she talks to Ricky Whittle, who plays Shadow Moon. So you're going to get to hear a lot of stuff about this episode. You're going to get all the goodness, and we're going to get started right now. So this was a really intense and weird and somewhat confusing episode, and I'm really glad that you're here to talk to me about it because this is all about guns, and uh, (laughs) I don't know anything about guns, and you know a heck of a lot about them. Well, I know a little bit. I I would say, on average, you're like above, you know, above the the general level. I'll take that. Yeah. I'll take that, yeah. So... We got a really up-close look at a god in this episode who isn't in the books. So this is, you know, we're far, far away from being on the the track of the books. And it's a god who is one of the old gods. It's Vulcan, god of, you know, volcanoes and things like that, and industry. And he's been kind of co-opted by the new gods who've helped him become the god of guns. So... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's Corbin Burnson, who we love. He's always a great bad guy. So what did you think about how guns were represented in this episode? What what was the message that you got out of this? Well, remember that the overall theme for the ep is sacrifice, right? That's what the whole point of this episode is supposed to be. And we know that because the characters told us that like 8,000 times over and over again. (laughs) It's true. And we start the episode with actually a a pretty moving and intense scene where we actually see Jesus sacrificing himself. Well, uh, we see a Jesus, because as we are told, there's lots of Jesuses. Yep. But he's busy doing what what Jesus is supposed to do, which is uh, sacrifice himself for his people. And this is the I guess this is the Jesus of Latin America, maybe, or maybe probably a probably a Catholic Jesus due to the there's like the the heart and sacrifice imagery. Yes. And we see the folks who are trying to immigrate to the States praying to Jesus and crossing themselves uh, before they make the illegal or quasi legal crossing across this river. So we know that they're invoking a Catholic Jesus there. Right. And the people who shoot them, the kind of faceless people who might be minions of Vulcan, we don't know. Right. Um, they have a slogan on their guns, which is also a religious slogan. I think it says, Thy kingdom come, what it says on their rifles, just just in case you forgot what the theme was. Okay, Lee? <laughs> yeah, which is kind of funny because generally folks who are going to be violently pro-Second Amendment, and I, I, I say this because I have some knowledge of the culture, mainly because I get exposed to it a lot because of where I live, usually they don't go with those kinds of religious slogans on your guns. Usually you go with something... Greek. In fact, the the slogan that you see most often used by Second Amendment enthusiasts, which I guess is the best way to refer to 
to refer to that clan is the the Greek laconic phrase molan lave, which I'm sure I'm saying wildly incorrectly, but it's the phrase attributed to Leonidas during the attack at Thermopylae. And it's a really funky Greek phrase. It's a classic example of a laconic phrase, and it uses a tense that doesn't exist in English. But that part in Zack Snyder's 300, when they're like, Spartans, lay down your weapons, and Leonidas, uh, and the Phantom of the Opera turns to them, and he's all like, Sparta, Persians, come and get them. That's, he's essentially quoting Molan Labe there. It, it, it's, a, it's a cool phrase that means essentially, having come this way, take them from us if you can. Very short and laconic, because that's how they rolled back in Sparta. So it's basically a fancy way of saying you can pry this gun from my cold, from dead, my cold dead hands. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. But it's, but it's two words because Greek is an awesome language. Yeah, it is, it is an awesome language, and it, it's too bad that we don't have more phrases in Greek. And it's important to note this doesn't happen until, like what, like at least halfway into the episode. There's a ton of other stuff that goes on, including a really awesome scene with Mr. Wednesday and, and uh, Shadow where he does the, kind of does the Matrix thing, where he like, he like pulls the, whatever it is, the piece of wood, or yeah, I guess it's an, pulls the infected piece of wood out of shadow with the incantation. It actually, overall, I wasn't particularly fond of this episode, but I loved that scene. That scene is interesting because it's about the transition from the old gods to the new gods, because at, you know, Shadow discovers he's wounded, Wednesday is kind of extracting whatever it is that's inside of Shadow that's wiggling Mm -hmm. around. And he says to Shadow, you know, uh, man has always had a God-shaped hole uh, in his head, basically. And, you know, he first filled it with trees, and he later filled it with industry. And so that's, you know, Odin is connected with trees and early religions often are connected with trees. And so I guess he does pull a tree out of him, which is kind of interesting. It's a chunk of wood from, was it the previous episode where Shadow is in the building where the, um, like the tree monster has taken over everything and he has to like bust his way out of it. But Odin refers to, or Mr. Wednesday or whatever, I'm sorry, I don't know if we've, I don't know if we're spoiling we've it or not. We've established that it's okay. Odin, yes. Odin says something very specific as he's doing his little exorcism on Shadow. He refers to the, the god of the wood, uh, and he calls him Mr. Wood, funk, funkily enough. And I, I think that's like, but he says it like he's, he kind of mumbles the dialogue because it's all part of his, it's part of his, um, it's part of his charm. He's casting a charm. Uh, and he says that, you know, Mr. Wood was the god of trees and he was the first of us to realize that, like, humans would worship you, but then he had to sacrifice himself for the industrial society, and that's how he gained immortality or whatever. But I like the scene because, A, because, you know, Ian Ian McShane is, you know, amazing, obviously, and is, I would watch him, you know, standing on a stage reading a phone book. But I also like it because it's one of the first instances, possibly the first, although you have to refresh me, where we actually see him do genuine magic. He actually does something otherworldly here. It's not just shysterism or a con or fast talking. He actually kind of magics the wood, out, the, the little, you know, wood grabby thingy out of shadow. And he does it in a, in a mystical kind of way with his voice. I thought, I thought it was a great little scene. Yeah, and it comes after Wednesday has continued to insist that he, you know, can't really tell Shadow who he is. And, you know, Shadow keeps sort of whining about, like, what the heck is going on? Like, who are you? Which by now he should have probably figured out, but that's okay. And this is, I think, the moment that Wednesday is kind of showing his his real self. A bit, yes. And he makes that comment at the end of the scene, after he's ripped this piece of wood out of him. Shadow's like, this is fucked up. And Wednesday responds, so, so fucked up. Religion 
and spies and those who fear nothing. Fear of the gods. And using that fear requires a certain element of fucked up. That's beautiful. I love that. It's a fantastic phrase to keep in mind as we kind of continue in the weirder and weirder journey that they go on in this episode where yeah. they finally do reach. We don't really know where they're going. We kind of have this hint that basically Wednesday's trying to find another god to be on his side, another old god. They make it to a place called Vulcan, Virginia. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so they're they're picking on Virginia uh, for reasons that I don't entirely understand. Uh, I don't I don't know if Virginia is associated with gun manufacture. In no, I think I think honestly they were trying to find and they probably could have gone with South Carolina, too. I think the intent was to find a very, very white middle America looking place, because when, once they arrive at this town, you know, they're driving down the street Wednesday and Shadow are driving down the street and they're looking and there's these folks in like almost Nazi-esque, you know, fascist looking outfits. They've got long coats armbands. It's a very fascist town as you as we come to find out. But it's like it's, you know, there's obviously these Nazi overtones because say what you want about the Nazis, you know, they nailed fashion and they've <laughs> and they really kind of thanks thanks to Hugo Boss and they really have that aesthetic down in like how everyone in the town is dressed. It's this odd pastiche of like fascist Nazi overtones mixed with, you know, 1950s, 60s middle America civil defense kind of feeling it it's oddly disconcerting and there are now i haven't gone like frame by frame because I, you know i've watched the episode once and then i skimmed through it um to prep for this but you know i think other than shadow i'm pretty sure everybody in that town is very white too yeah and that's that's sort of highlighted we see several scenes that are it's like clearly everyone is white and so this isn't just a story about guns, especially as we go through the town, it becomes more clear that it's it's a, a particular story about guns, and it, it involves fascism. And at one point, Wednesday is describing what people believe in in this town, and he says... Dedicated to one sticky belief. America. Their America. There aren't just two Americas. Everyone looks at Lady Liberty and sees a different face. There's a kind of uh, elision going on here between the worship of guns and the worship of a particular kind of America. Yeah, the show's angle, I think, is also very clear because of the line that they say right after that. Right after the every America has a different, or everyone sees a different face, Wednesday then proceeds to say, Even if it crumbles under question. Later, um, not to skip too far ahead, when they're talking to Vulcan, Vulcan says this thing. People do tend to behave if they know they're being watched. They like being watched. <laughs> Somebody's watching. Somebody's always watching. And then they look up and we see a satellite going overhead, some kind of <laughs> surveillance device. And so that's another piece of symbolism that's smushed on top of all this other stuff we've got. So now Vulcan is also the god of surveillance right? <laughs> on top of everything else. So we've got this kind of cartoonish invocation of, you know, let's face it, a kind of New York vision of what Virginia is and what culture in Virginia is and what gun culture is. And, you know, it's it's kind of everything horrible, everything that sort of the quote-unquote liberal media <laughs> would consider well, to be horrible. I mean, yes, I, I'd agree with that. It's a stylized view of what uh, of what I think the the things that everyone thinks there is to be afraid of of the American South, like the the hyper hyper 
like firearm fetishized American South. It's probably also why they picked Virginia. Because remember, it's not Virginia. It's the fine state of Virginia. (laughs) That's right. And I mean, they could have, as you said, they could have picked another southern state. And so I guess like, so this finally brings me back to the the question that that we started with, which is, you know, you live in the South, you're you're a gun user and a gun owner. Does that feel like a stereotype you've seen before of what gun culture is like? Does it feel like something new? Does it feel, I don't know, insightful? I don't know. It's hard to say. It's certainly an interpretation. And I can absolutely see how it would be, even though this is obviously satirized, I can I can see how this would be somebody's impression potentially of what it's like, especially because Shadow is kind of our POV character. And so we're seeing the town, we're seeing, you know, the the threat of armed white, you know, finger quotes, crazy America through a minority's point of view. Yeah, it absolutely looks terrifying. Now, does it look like what I see when I go drive around Houston? No, but, you know, it's a TV show. Now, what exactly is the point here, right? Why introduce this this character and this town that isn't in the book? What's the What is the point being made? I mean, I think that's the big question. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I think, you know, hopefully we'll get to even ask some of the people who worked on the show this question. But it seems to me that in the novel, one of the big things that's missing when we learn about the gods that live in the United States is some examination of uh, gun culture. It's not just part of contemporary American culture. I mean, it goes all the way back to when the United States was founded. I mean, being able to have your own gun is really, it's part of American identity. So it makes sense to introduce that. It makes sense to have to grapple with that question. I think it's just really interesting to see that gun culture is treated in this incredibly narrow way and that we assume that guns equal racism, equal fascism, equal surveillance society. And again, I'm not saying that they don't sometimes. Um, certainly guns make all of those bad things easier. <laughs> you know, it's it's not like adding guns to racism is a, is a great thing. We've seen that that's actually really <laughs> horrific. But do guns cause that? Are guns necessarily connected with those things in the United States? You know, I think American Gods believes yes. American Gods is basically saying that part of the uh, sickness in American culture, and of course, every nation has a dark side, and, and the dark side in the United States is a kind of authoritarian racism. But it really seems like the show wants us to believe that, that guns have almost like a causal relationship with that. Well, I mean, I d- yes, I would agree with it. That's what I think they're going for, potentially. Although, I mean, here's the deal with the show, right? Where do the gods come from? You know, the gods and this show we've been shown repeatedly are dependent upon their worshipers. They are, there's not really even a chicken and egg problem to be had here. Like, you know, how could God have created the world if there was no one to believe in him in the first place? Because I think the show's answer to that would be God didn't make the world. All of these gods appear to be the construct of the people who believe in them. So there is a point of view, I don't think I can I can subscribe to it, but there is a point of view that a gun a gun is an object. A gun is a is an amoral, unpurposed object. And we, when we pick it up, imbue it with whatever we're going to imbue it with, be that menace, um, be that justice, you know, whatever we're going to do with the gun, it's, you know, the gun doesn't kill the person, you know, it's like guns don't kill people, I kill people. But I don't, I don't necessarily think that as a person 
who owns guns, I don't think I can believe that. I, I mean, it's true that they're tools, absolutely. A gun is like a crowbar. It's like a, it's like a baseball bat. It's like a hammer. It's a tool with a purpose. A gun's purpose ultimately is to stop threats, I suppose, where a threat is equal to whatever is in the mind of the holder as a threat. And not, and treating a gun as simply just another tool, I think, is being ignorant of the fact that it, tools are designed to be used. So in this particular little town, kind of to wrap this back around here, it does feel like, you know, the show is performing a wholesale condemnation of American gun culture, but it's doing it in such a way that we all can sort of stand back. Because no town in America, even if it's, you know, Strom Thurmond's hometown on, you know, the Confederate, whatever holiday the Confederates have where they celebrate how awesome the Confederacy was, not even that town is going to be as fascist, racist, and messed up as... As, as Vulcan, Virginia, because, you know, nowhere in America do people, you know, gather in a square to hear a crazy bearded man speak and then pull out their guns and shoot off into the air thousands of rounds of ammunition and, and then go about their day aiming guns at strange black people that drive into town and trying to get them out because, you know, it's all white here. Like, it's, it's so far exaggerated out of even what is what is some of the worst parts of America that it lets everybody sort of take a step back and be like, well, okay, they're not really making fun of me. They're making fun of the people who are like really bad and I'm not like that. They're making fun of the people who demand human sacrifice in the gun factory. Well, I mean, you know, kind of, yeah. But at the same time, obviously, they're holding the lens up to everybody. And that's that's kind of the point. And did you think that it was effective at that? Because I think, you know, for me watching it, I mean, I'm I'm here in the San Francisco Bay Area, so I'm surrounded by people who hate guns and, you know, would probably think that this episode didn't even go far enough in saying that guns are bad. <laughs> but for you, like, does it feel like a, a relevant criticism as someone who's, who's not in that kind of hyper-liberal culture? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I certainly don't you know, look at Vulcan and his, and his cult of gun worshippers and see myself pictured in them. No. Is it a, is it a valid cautionary tale about the dangers of, of hypersexualizing gun violence as a thing that people love? I mean, I don't know, maybe. On the other hand, I mean, if you could go find some incredibly violent, racist, gun-loving people and tell them that if they believed hard enough, they could literally conjure the avatar of guns out of thin air and he would lead them to a paradise where they could have all the guns they wanted and be as crazy as they wanted, I think a lot of people in America would probably want to take you up on that offer, frankly. Well, especially if it would bring wealth to their town, right? Because that's that's the thing we haven't talked about is that this town is so nice in in the sense that it, it's clearly like throbbing with money because they have this ammunition factory, right? right? So it's not just that they're kind of, I think you're right that there's this kind of like weird sexual fetish of guns in this episode that we're supposed to think is completely gross, but also it's the gun industry or the bullet industry specifically. <laughs> because guns don't kill people. Bullets kill people. That's right. Well, bullets um, that have been, you know, forged from the blood of human sacrifice. God. Yes, exactly. I have to say, I kind of loved that opening moment. It was almost sort of David Lynch level insanity, oh, yeah. where it was like the guy is all do do do. I'm on my happy day. And then he's <laughs> tossed into the the flaming cauldron of, of bullet making. And it's just kind of this as you've said before, like sort of over the top insanity um, to represent how extreme it can be in the United States when it comes to belief in guns. So, okay, so let's talk about the sacrifice of Vulcan. Did that make sense to you? Like, what did, what did you think was going on there? 
I, well, I mean, it made sense to me from the perspective that Odin is eliminating a potential enemy in his quest to do wherever it is he's trying to do and go wherever he's trying to go. That's right, because Vulcan mean, sold them out to the new gods, basically. Yes. Yeah, Vulcan, I mean, not a good guy, not on their side. He made Odin a bitchin' sword, but at the same time... <laughs> oh, I hope we get to see more of that sword, because I was 100% down with the sword scene. <laughs> oh, it's a cool sword, and Vulcan, you know, Vulcan whipped that out, and you know, you're kind of reminded of the fact that this is Vul this is Hephaestus, this is the god of the forge, and even before he was the god of forging bullets, he was very much the god of forging all kinds of other stuff, and that obviously includes swords. And he walks with a limp, I don't know if you noticed or not, but they, they introduced... That's one of the reasons why I've really enjoyed the portrayal of all of the, all of the immortals, all of the gods in the show is the little subtle things they throw in as callbacks to their original mythological origins. They're always, I think they're always very well done. At least they have been so far. Yeah. And one of the things that in the conversation before Odin strikes Corbin Burnson down, <laughs> strikes down uh, Q, because I don't, I don't know if you remember, but he's also from the Q continuum as well. But um, Oh, was he the other Q? Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, Q. I did not remember that. That is awesome. <laughs> Before Wednesday strikes down Vulcan, they talk a little bit about sacrifice, or they talk at great length about sacrifice. And, and actually, that brings up another great callback to the actual mythologies around Odin, because Vulcan reminds Odin, well, even if no one is sacrificing to you. You can sacrifice yourself. Oh, that's You've right. You've done it before. That's right. um, and in the last episode of this podcast, uh, we had Jackson Crawford on, who's a scholar who studies uh, Icelandic uh, epics about Odin. And he said, yeah, this is a big part of the myth about Odin is Odin did, in fact, sacrifice himself to himself, which is such a cool, weird meta sacrifice. It's something that I would imagine the Scandinavian folks would come up with. It's fitting with the region, I think. Yeah, like I said, it's super meta. It's a great kind of like brain twister, but also just super badass at the same time. You know, it's like this god is so badass that he can sacrifice himself <laughs> to himself and like somehow come out the other side even more tough. And that's all he has left at this point because he has no worshipers. But I think what what we're intended to believe is that the new gods came to Vulcan and kind of gave him the same pitch that they gave to Odin with like the crazy emoji and gra and weird unicorn graphics. And we're like, look, you know, you used to be the god of the forge, but now we can make you the god of bullets. Like, how does that sound? And he was like, yeah, I'm totally there. Yeah. It raises the question, I think, as it should of like, you know, who else is out there? What other what other gods are, are sitting around is, you know, is Poseidon lurking underneath the surface of the sea, annoyed that nobody prays to him anymore, waiting for, you know, the new gods to approach him? Or is Poseidon lurking out there as the captain of a U.S. ballistic missile submarine already somewhere? You know, where is, where is he? Where are the other gods? And what are they doing? And when are they going to show up? Yeah, it does. I mean, Poseidon could either be, you know, the god of swimming pools or... <laughs> <laughs> or he could be an admiral in the Navy somewhere. That's true. Yeah. Or like in charge of an oil platform. Right. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, maybe not because that's kind of harming the sea perhaps. And maybe Poseidon would be bummed about that. But, but yeah, it does raise that question. But we finally do see Wednesday kill Vulcan. So is Vulcan just dead now? There are unanswered questions about the corporeal or non-corporeal nature of these gods. Like, we don't know, for example, where do they go when Technology Boy slaps the VR thing on their face? Like, are they just laying there or do they actually get zapped into some kind of VR 
backseat of a limo dimension somewhere where they actually talk. Where is Mr. World? Where does he go? And what does he what does he represent? And when he's you know making his face go all crazy, is that just like what he's able to make people think they're saying, or does he actually have the ability to alter his physical form? And if so, is he immortal? Is he human? What what are these creatures? I don't think we have a solid answer yet one way or the other. And we also know that that they have limited knowledge too, um, because for example, Wednesday doesn't have any idea what what's up with Laura. Like who? How did Laura get resurrected? You know, why is she there? Like he's he's as confused as we are. And it definitely inconveniences him too, because he wants her gone. Clearly. Yeah, and it's it's funny because in sort in the parts of this episode where we weren't in like you know evil Whitey McWhiterson Guntown, <laughs> we were we were following the Scooby Gang around. Yeah, and so what did you think of their adventure? It was a little bit meandering. I in my notes I just kept writing, okay, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Laura Moon's character. I don't think her arc is interesting. I think it's a I think it's a bad character arc. I guess it's something that I like McSweeney. He's pretty cool. I believe the the cab driver's his name is Salim. I like them. They're all right. But I mean, they're not. It's like whenever the camera cuts to them, it's like, okay, now we're on the B string players. And I guess they needed to fill some time in the episode. But I'm I just don't I don't like their story. I don't like where they're going. I don't particularly like her. I think she's... They're sort of reminding me of like the camp followers or something. They're Yeah, kind of, yeah. Each of them has less power than a god, but has some kind of connection to the gods. Well, and in this in this episode, they end up back in the, the alligator bar. Like, it, why? Why do they end up back there? Like, that's in the middle of nowhere. It's like in the midpoint between all of the places they need to be going. And the cabbie kind of turns them around and they go back to the bar. Was that like Brian Fuller saying that... We haven't used this set enough. We need to spend some more time on this set to justify how much money we spent. Look at these alligator teeth in the ceiling. But aren't they there because that's where Laura's family is and she wants to go kind of gaze sadly at the family she wished was dead? Is that why they ended up back there? I mean, I don't know. At that point, we were kind of, I was ready to fast forward. I'm just, I'm so done with that storyline and it just, it just, it is failing to hold my interest. And I know that's not, you know, a professional thing to say. I know I should be you know, a passive observer and allow the art to flow over me and make my own impressions. But she just sucks, man. She just sucks. Yeah, I mean, I I feel super ambivalently about her character. When Paula Gatos was on a couple episodes ago, we talked about it. And Paula kind of turned me around on her character a little bit. And she she argued that, you know, her arc is a redemption arc and that she's supposed to be a person who didn't care about anything in life. But now that she's dead, she kind of has something she cares about, which is Shadow. But I feel like the writing on her character really doesn't sell that very much. Like, she really still seems to be just kind of a jerk. I don't think that she cares about Shadow. I mean, her, she's forced to care about him, yes. Like, she, and she clearly does because she mentions in this episode how, like, you know, he kissed me and I, my heart started beating again for the first time. But she doesn't care about him, care about him. Now, like before, and you know, they've made this this note that like, you know, she called him puppy. She treated him like in life, like, you know, sort of a pet. She tolerated him and she loved him. And then when he was in jail, she was like, eh, okay, whatever. And then when he came back, she was, well, she was dead at that point. But she didn't particularly love him as a spouse should love a spouse in life. And now that she's been resurrected by this coin thing and like locked onto him and has to has to meet up with him, you know, now that she's been 
pointed by fate or whatever at him, she still doesn't love him. She's just like, oh yeah, I guess I need him now. Yep, yeah, no, I, that's cool. So she's, perhaps it's being written as an arc of redemption, but I don't feel that it's playing out that way. I feel like it's playing out like a, you know, badly written filler B plot that that they're doing and it's just not coming together. Aimless. And I felt like a lot of the conversations between her and Mad Sweeney and Salim were kind of like naughty teenager conversations where there were some funny lines, but I also just, again, I wasn't sure where they were going. Like they have that weird conversation about anal sex. And I was like, where, what is your point here? Like, I get that it's supposed to be maybe a little bit funny, but it also feels like they're aiming for something even more profound, some kind of profound message about like women and gay men or. I think that Fuller, Brian Fuller, the showrunner, enjoys exploring taboo. And I mean, you can clearly see that with Hannibal. But I think that in this particular case, there were probably two purposes to that conversation. One served the plot, but I think another was simply to put the audience in the position of having to be a voyeur to this uncomfortable conversation for no other reason than just to make you feel something. I like the idea that there should be kind of moments of awkwardness among these people who have been touched by immortality. And like they should, I think in a standard narrative, they would be on a quest and their hearts would be full of, you know, shining light and they would be, you know, going forth to save the world. And instead they're like, oh, we're hanging out, talking about butt sex and smoking cigarettes in a bar. And and, and that's cool. But I wanted to like them more. And that's the thing that's missing. Salim, I like. I, I really enjoy his character. I'd love to know more. But like, otherwise, I'm I'm just not I'm not there with them. Here's the other problem. And I think this is the big problem I have, because, you know, I can moan about how I don't like a character or whatever. But just because I don't like a character doesn't mean that that character has no dramatic place in the series. I think the sin that's being committed here, the, the true sin, that needs to be examined is that we are now in, with this episode, I believe, we're in the back half of this eight-part season, right? This is episode five, right? Okay, so we're in the back half of the season, and we're still asking questions. We're kind of getting to the point to where we should be resolving questions. If, if the, you know, if the through line is going to follow the, the dramatic course that it should, so that by the time we reach the end of the season, we've got an appropriate cliffhanger or whatever, or, you know, some kind of finale and then a teeny bit of space to untie knots if they're going to give us that. We should not, we shouldn't still be, like, asking questions and introducing new elements. We should, at this point, be resolving questions. While, clearly, I think that the, you know, the journey into Vulcan, Virginia is part of, like, the journey to, is is part of the resolution, it's part of the, the forward movement of the episode, it doesn't feel like any of the stuff with the Scooby Gang has anything to do with the resolution of the series, you know, or of, of the season. This isn't. This doesn't tell us what the gods are gathering for. This doesn't tell us how the war is going to go down. It doesn't really even tell us if or how any of the, you know, Laura or Salim or uh, McSweeney are going to help with the with the battle if they're going to help. It doesn't tell us anything about what we're what we're being built up to see as the resolution of the season. It's just them fucking around for half the episode. Which again, could be the point is that it's kind of trying to break genre conventions. But I agree with you. I feel like, you know, the fact that those characters came together was good. Um, That I like the idea that now they're all on the road together and kind of bonding a little bit. But I like to see more resolution. I'd like for us to not have another episode where I have to listen to Shadow asking Wednesday, what's going on? Who are you? It's like, they should know by now there's two more episodes left in the season like you know let's get going let's not have more filler like 
you know, I love hearing about butt sex as much as anyone, but like <laughs> I didn't need that conversation right at that moment. I needed a little bit more substance. Yeah, I could have done with more time listening into whatever conversation Shadow's having with Wednesday. I mean, I could have done, you know, actually, if every scene had Wednesday in it, I'd be happy because I think that's awesome. The actor is great. Like I said, I'd watch him read the phone book. But I mean, it's just, it's not, we're past where they should be having conversations. We're past where they should be, you know, doing Kevin Smith shit in a diner. Every moment that the audience sees needs to be significant in some way or another, right? I mean... It's kind of the, you know, the checkoff theory. If there's going to be a if there's going to be a gun shown, then the gun has to be used. If we are if it's important enough to show us, it needs to mean something. I'd like to mm-hmm. see that the arcs for those characters just developed a little bit more because if it yeah. is true that Laura is on a redemption arc, which I'm totally down with, let's just see a little bit more of that. But on the whole, I would say you know, those bits aside, I still thought that this episode had some pretty nerve jangly moments. Like I I was down with it. I I did like the satire element of the gun stuff, although I also thought it was a little bit heavy handed, but it was a little on the nose, but I think it was, I mean, I think they made that choice on purpose. Yeah. And it's not as if we haven't seen a million other gods who also are heavily satirized and part of like a highly stylized exaggerated environment so jillian anderson you know what honestly me and laura were talking laura's my wife laura not laura moon we were we were talking about how awesome it would have been if during one of jillian anderson's montages she'd actually appeared as jillian anderson or actually had appeared as dana scully or or a dana scully analog as part of her tv persona set that would have been amazing wow well we might still see that i could i could imagine that happening because this this show is really meta. What's left for Wednesday and Shadow to do? They've spent some time gathering allies. They have, um, what's his name? Chernobog. He's, although I was confused about that too, because I thought he said he was going to go with them, but apparently he's just going to meet them because he vanished as soon as the episode Rendezvous was over. Rendezvous in, in Wisconsin. Okay. Um, so we, they've got him. They have the Zoria sisters. They have the Jin. Um, we've seen the Jin meeting with Wednesday in a very brief scene. Oh, did we? I missed that. Yeah, it's very fast. It's just like this brief moment in a diner where we sort of see the Jin leaving. Um, and so they've met. There's a little reference to them getting out of the prison with help from Mr. Nancy because there's a spider that comes and opens oh, up their that's handcuffs. Right. That's right, yes. So Mr. Nancy is on their side. I'm a little disappointed that we're now clear of episode six, so there are there are two episodes left, but we haven't gotten, I think there may have been one or two throwaway lines, but no more than that, any clue to start on, like, the theorizing of who Shadow is. Like, because you would think that by this point we would have gotten maybe a few more little oblique clues than we have gotten, because the internet loves to theorize. Just look at what they did to Westworld and how how stupidly wrong I was with my my opinions on what was going on in that show. I mean, we don't know at this point, at the end of episode six, we don't know hardly anything about the significance of Shadow to this plot and why Odin has picked him. And clearly he's a talented everyman and he can do a lot of cool stuff and he's certainly easy on the eyes. But really, why is he here? Why him specifically? Well, I mean, we we now know that Wednesday is Odin. We saw the scene where Odin cures Shadow of his 
tree infection. Tree infection. <laughs> and he kisses him. Odin kisses. That's true. Shadow. He gives him a little cheek peck. And um, it's kind of, and it's pretty it's pretty enthusiastic. Like it's it's very it feels almost dare I say fatherly. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, Odin is the all father, so he's kind of everybody's dad. But I think there's we're starting to get some hints that their connection might be uh, a connection of blood. You think it might be filial, not just friendly? I mean, I think that either there's some kind of uh, spiritual connection between them, like maybe we're going to find out that Shadow is perhaps a god of some kind, like who didn't realize that he was a god, but actually is. Is he the buffalo with flaming eyes that we've seen, I think, two or three times now? Could be. Or he could be some kind of shaman. Again, he wouldn't have known necessarily that he was a shaman, but maybe these visions and his connection to Wednesday make him have a special place among the gods. Like maybe he conjures gods, maybe he's a god magnet. Or again, maybe he has a special relationship to Wednesday. Wednesday certainly seems to think so. Like Wednesday's clearly sought him out. And we do know from, well, those of us who've nerded out with Norse mythology, We know that Odin does call special soldiers to him to fight for him at Ragnarok, which Ragnarok in Wisconsin is a great idea. Makes a lot of sense to me. They could fight with with cheese. Certainly, I've wanted the world to end on the the two times I've been in Wisconsin, both times, yes. Aw, well, I really like Wisconsin, but whatever. And there's plenty of good things about Texas, too. So let's not... I'm, like, really anti-shitting on any particular U.S. state because I I don't feel like... (laughs) I don't feel like any state really has uh, has like a like to stand on at this point. So so if we're kind of following the old Norse myth, I think that clearly what we can say for sure is that Odin seeks great soldiers to fight alongside him. So we know for sure that Shadow is a great soldier. Why is he a great soldier? What is his special power or special purpose? My guess is we're not going to find out for at least another episode, which is super annoying. But maybe we'll find out next episode. I don't know. There is an answer in the book, but this we've deviated so far from the book that I, I actually think that information is totally worthless. So those are the outstanding questions. Is who is Shadow? Why is he important to this fight? Is this fight Ragnarok? Is this just a kind of old gods versus new gods fight? What is their goal? And can we wrap up all of these disparate threads quickly? Because we've got three different people who are following after the gods with very different agendas. And we have the gods themselves, and there's many of them, and they have different agendas. So we better have some a lot of plot get laid down really quick. Yeah, that would be that would be what I would hope for. Hi, my name's Genevieve Valentine and we are in New York with Orlando Jones from American Gods on Stars. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Let's talk about rising sea levels. Okay, sure. Uh, I have nothing to do with them. Let me begin with that. I believe you. Yeah. I believe you completely. However, your scene in American Gods was one of the most galvanizing, not just of the entire series, but I think recently on TV at all. Oh, wow. I feel like in general, anger is seen as a character flaw a lot on television. Sure. That kind of recklessness is destructive. But Mm -hmm. you used galvanizing anger as a justifying force, as a force for action. Anger gets shit done. A propelling force. A propelling force. Yes. Let's talk about that. Things in the world now are unstable. Okay. (laughs) The sea levels are rising. Things are happening here, there, and everywhere. It's all full circle. I like this. As a god, Mr. Nancy wants something to be done. And rather than try 
to interfere in sort of the subtler ways that a lot of the other gods are doing, mm-hmm. he shows up and says, you fucking do it yourself. You do do it yourself. That's just the way it works. I mean, people don't tend to do do things for you. I mean, when you're a baby, maybe. But um, in the adult world, if you want something done, you kind of have to do it yourself. So he is, shall we say, using the narrative to uh, compel and create worship, to create believers. He breaks right through the fourth wall, though. Like, he's not even speaking so much to the people who were there. No, no, he's talking to the people that are there. He's absolutely talking to the people that are there. That is, that is the audience. Because they're in a very particular state. They are. They are frightened. Mm-hmm. They are unsure of their circumstances. They know not what the future holds. And uh, he's absolutely talking to uh, the man praying to him. But he's also talking to, obviously, the rest of the people on the ship. But from his perspective, it is, it is not for the audience. It is, it is for the captives. Okay. He is their God. He's, he's from the African diaspora. He's Ashanti, Ghanaian is sort of his uh, origins, but the stories of a Nazi spread all throughout the world. And uh, that, is, that is his target audience on that particular ship. A lot of the gods that we see on the show sort of evolve from their times, for mm-hmm. their times. Sure. Uh, so we see Bilquis existing through history in different forms. Mm-hmm. When Mr. Nancy shows up, he is dressed more or less as we see him throughout the rest of the series. He yes. is a man out of time. He is yes. a man He's out of time. beyond the narrative that we're talking about. American Gods is a story about how stories are made. So. Very much so. So it, I agree with you that the narrative is could be meant for other people. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot take that away. <laughs> it's just in, in that it's a strange place to meet somebody. You know, on a on a ship full of captives, it's a it's an unusual place in 1697. So I, I think it causes and clouds a lot of things for people, and I I, I really like that. <laughs> I enjoy that. I want to get to the end of where you're going because I'm really interested in this this notion of at least for me how things are connected. Mm-hmm. I think that when we talk about global warming and we we talk about food hunger and we talk about women's rights. And we talk about human rights. These things are all connected. I don't understand this notion that we're going to solve one and then we're going to move to the next. <laughs> like, <laughs> like there are these little boxes <laughs> on the hillside. <laughs> I, I think it's very a very strange notion to uh, to disconnect what cannot be separated. And I, and I think that's what's interesting about what he has to say. Because if you look at the history of not just the people who are descendants of slaves, it hasn't gotten much better, but also if you look at the, the treatment of women, though it has improved in certain areas, you know, we, we still find ourselves on a crisis on the women rights, women's rights side. <laughs> how, could, how could you not be? I'm always fascinated by people who, look, who say, who look at that at like, you know, oh, they have, you know, they have suffrage. So, you know, what are, you, what are you talking about? And I go, well, slavery is bigger today than ever before. 27 million slaves is the low estimate. The average age is 12 years old, and the target is predominantly women. So help me understand, if there are more slaves in the world today than ever before, uh, in this country it's women of color, but still women uh, at large are, are far more at risk for human trafficking than men are, though men are certainly are at risk, and these are all children. So I just help me understand how women's rights <laughs> and humans right, human rights have improved that greatly. 
when we've produced more slaves than we did during a time that we act was so long ago. So I think a lot of what American Gods talks about, and even what Nancy is talking about, the themes could be applied to a lot of the things that we talk about all the time, not just in particular, you know, African Americans. There definitely is a theme in the show of willful ignorance. There is. And how... Privilege. Privilege. It's, yes, it's the cocoon that damages everyone but you. It is, but it's a tricky word, privilege, at least from... Not from Mr. Nancy's perspective, per se, but from Orlando Jones's perspective, because I am a recipient of uh, the fabled black privilege, uh, the unicorn. So, you know, black <laughs> privilege is a tricky thing. <laughs> I can't say I don't have it. I do. Uh, in, in many ways, I'm more privileged than white people, because fame comes with this this set of things that uh, that don't don't make sense you can't even really understand what they are but there's no question that I'm privileged so in that sense you know when we talk about privilege only existing for white people no it just exists for a small number of people and that's what's so so damning about it because there doesn't seem to be any mechanism by which to spread it around to everyone so here we are where some people have human rights and other people don't what a lovely conversation to be having at <laughs> nine o'clock in the morning and I'm thinking about how this ties into the idea of willful ignorance, how this ties into the idea of everything being connected. Mm -hmm. Do you see American Gods as a narrative about waking people up to privilege and trying to shake the ingrained systems? I think American Gods is a narrative about who we are and what we believe and what we, we choose to believe. And so in that sense, we can choose to be willful, willfully ignorant about certain facts and believe this anyway, because that's what we wish to believe. <laughs> and about how that that belief, uh, our own belief systems and the belief systems that we propagate manifest worship because you can manifest something into existence if enough people believe. They need only believe. So I believe that's what the narrative is ultimately about. Mm -hmm. And that narrative doesn't seek to push you in any particular direction. It just seeks to open up the doors uh, to conversations by which you can make your own decisions, hopefully looking at all the information about what is and isn't best for you and uh, the future. I see the story as very much that. And, and I say that because we skip over some of the gods like Vulcan, mm -hmm. who speaks to a completely different group of people than somebody like like Bilquist, but no one is saying that Vulcan is bad or even Mr. World. Mr. World sees what he does as good. He doesn't see it as bad at all. All of the gods see what they do is good. So I think in, in the modern context, uh, American Gods is a very interesting show because of how it opens the door. Because the real problem we look at today, at least in my opinion, when you look at you know what people think, is that we live in a digital world where we can curate the voices that we hear. Mm -hmm. And if you exist only in this bubble, only in this cloud, and you don't hear anything else, then I guess you could be very surprised by our... Our, our latest president. But if you were listening to a lot of other voices out there who were quite clear about how they felt and what their circumstances were and how they wished their circumstances could improve, you wouldn't have seen somebody who didn't have a shot. <laughs> but if you only curate these conversations that you want to hear, then you're you're in some ways silencing other voices and therefore you don't have a clear perspective on what the uh, the populace really is. And so 
you know, you can't do that in American Gods. There's a lot of different gods who have a lot of different points of view. Sersnabog has a very specific point of view. Killing is not a big deal to him. Again, we generally see that as a negative, but he finds a way through a game of checkers to justify the swing of his blow. And all the gods do that. They all have a particular way of twisting things to fit what their their belief system is. And we can see why they've lost so many worshipers, but you can also see how the use of technology could help them gain worshipers, but they're from a different era. So that's very difficult for those gods to make those changes. And they don't see those changes as valid because it's not the same type of worship. Digital's a different thing. Many to many communication didn't exist in human history 10 years ago. It's very new. It's one to one and one to many is all there ever was. And now we have many to many. What are we going to do? <laughs> Let's talk about new gods versus the old gods in terms of communication, because the old gods in general, at, at this moment in the story that mm-hmm. we're talking about, have are sort of in the twilight of their power a lot of the time, but they have the intimacy that comes with thousands of years of acquaintance. Yes. We have the new gods who all seem to have formed more or less a very itchy board of directors. Let's talk about the different relationships that you see the gods as having with each other. I love the the line uh, that actually was in last week's episode when uh, Clarice Reachman, whose uh, character name I'm not going to butcher right now, she says, family is who we exist with. And I think that's very much where the old gods are. You know, they are an uneasy relationship as we watch Wednesday sort of collect the members that he believes he needs for the war, but they're a uneasy family. Even Nancy is an uneasy member of that family because you never know where Nancy stands on anything except, you know, to get what Nancy wants. But that's an uneasy relationship that I think we often have. But again, in our own families, we often ignore the elephant in the room. Pretend it's not there (laughs) (laughs) while we go on about our lives and people have children and the children grow up and then they recognize there's an elephant in the room and go, why are these old people acting like there's no elephant in this room? (laughs) And they tend to stir things up in that way, the the beauty of children. But I, I see it very much in that way that it's uneasy. And I think the new gods also have an equally uneasy relationship, you know, technical boys' behavior versus media's behavior are very different. You know, media's a very calming force about things. Uh, whereas technical boys, like, I, I see no reason to even placate these people. Like, what, why? Do you see the new gods as the children in the uneasy family that are pointing out the elephant in the room? Because they're not portrayed as holy. You're correct that, that they're not portrayed as holy evil. No. I don't think any of them are wholly evil. I don't think any of them are wholly good. And I think that's the paradox of humanity, right? There, there is no such thing as that. I mean, I look at when people say buzzwords like racist, like, oh, that's a horrible racist. And I go, I love racist. I don't really know what you're talking about. Everybody has somebody in their family that's racist or sexist or homophobic or something. Everybody has somebody. But we don't really know the person that way. I mean, we know the person who raised us and nurtured us and treated us with kindness and love. And then we discover something about them that we find is distasteful or, or it doesn't represent an enlightened point of view about other human beings. But we don't want anyone to hurt our racist. We want our racist safe. <laughs> And we talk about these other nebulous races that we don't mind getting killed or hurt or whatever, but nobody really wants anybody to die, not not because of that. So it's tricky when we say that word racism, Hmm. because it's meant to damn someone to hell, but that's not who they ultimately are. I think that's the paradox that exists within all of us, and therefore talking about these things and figuring out how we can live together 
and uh, be more tolerant, as one might say, is uh, <laughs> <laughs> is the tricky line we're all walking <laughs> between the less tolerant, let's wipe them all out, and the tolerant, let's leave them all alone. So I I try and uh, in my younger year, I might have been, you know, let this motherfucker burn, as they say. But in my older years, uh, I think I'm more mindful that that's a, that might be fun to say, but I don't really want to see that happen. Too many things are connected. Too many things are connected. And pretty soon, suddenly, they're going to come from my bad people and my family, and I don't want that to happen. So I need all the killing to stop. Let's just talk through this. <laughs> but, you know, I'm a kid from the Deep South, so I don't see the present circumstances as new. You know, this was my father's world, my grandfather's world, my great-grandfather's world, my great-great-grandfather's world. I see it as business as usual. And so... In that sense, I'm glad that there's a conversation happening about it, but I don't really need to be aware of these things. I was already aware of them. I'm looking for action items. And at that point, you know, maybe we can get some change. I hope things are going well on set and everybody gets along and you guys are having a nice time. It's bizarre how well we get along. Okay. I have, I've never seen this particular configuration work this way on a show of any kind before. Not, not in my career. No, not like this. Ricky Whittle's wonderful. Are you just saying that because he's coming in after this? No. You know, I think people are missing something about him that I am fascinated by. And maybe that's just because I'm fascinated by it. So I want everybody to be fascinated by it. You've seen the show? Mm-hmm. When Ricky Whittle sits in this chair, and after you're done talking, tell me if you met Shadow Moon. Then you won't. You'll meet Ricky Whittle, and they are wildly different people. He is funny. He's gregarious. He's he's infectious. He has a thing. Of, you know, I mean, he's fun to be around. Nothing like Shadow Moon. <laughs> <laughs> Shadow Moon could eat a bullet at any point. <laughs> he is depressed. <laughs> Everything in his life has gone wrong. He got out of prison. His wife died. She was blowing his best friend. I mean, everything is left in his life. <laughs> but... He's surrounded by these fantastical characters like Mr. Nancy and Mr. Wednesday and Sersnabog and what have you and Bilquist. I mean, there's so many wonderful big characters, but uh, it's easy to miss that the performance is is really extraordinary because he sells you that he's a completely different human being. That's just I'm I'm impressed by that. The same with um, Yatide. She's not Bilquist. She's not even close to Bilquist. Like Bilquist is this. There's a power when she. It's. I've I've never seen a cast this extraordinary before. But frankly, in television or film, it it just seems like it's an endless well. And we get along with each other in a very like a family. Like we are a motley crew. We punch. We fight. We <laughs> tackle. It's it's ridiculous. Generally, when you're doing, this is a perfect example. So generally, if you've been doing press all day long at a press junket or whatnot, generally the cast doesn't all organize a dinner to go out together themselves. Right. That's usually like a kind of a studio function thing. But we do. We actually want to go to dinner, <laughs> do our thing together. But we enjoy um, each other. You know, like me and Crispin Glover. I love hanging out with Crispin Glover. He's awesome. But I didn't. I never met Crispin Glover before, so I didn't. I didn't know that that was going to be the outcome of it. It's just very strange, you know. Ian, everybody. It's Kristen Chenoweth is lovely. It's it's the most 
amazingly wonderful cast I have ever had the pleasure to be a part of. And this, be fair, that's not true. Generally, people say that in press, but they don't really mean it. It's not put on, but... Let's talk about the development of fandom. What has changed in the fourth wall in fandom besides just the internet? Because the internet was around for a long time and people were like using secret names and writing 800,000 word Mulder Scully fan fiction where the entire thing is them in a hotel room that only has one bed. But now we have Comic-Con. We have podcasts. We have the idea that everyone should know the fourth wall is not there anymore. When When did you find that changing for you? I remember going to Comic-Con when Mad Magazine, Mad TV had come out and I was on Mad TV and you could drive down to San Diego and damn near park across the street and walk over to Comic-Con <laughs> you hang out at Artist Alley. I mean, <laughs> you know, we were all a bunch of nerds cosplaying, having a good time. The studio wasn't there. The network wasn't there. Nobody cared <laughs> that you were going. <laughs> Nobody wished to support your trip <laughs> to Comic-Con or any other con for that matter. So for me, it began there, mm-hmm. but it, it was a community and it wasn't online. And the only place you could really go to get everybody in the same room uh, was to a con. And I think that element of it largely still exists today, mm-hmm. um, which is why I like going to cons. But it's, it's different. I mean, and I, and I understand how it's shifted, but I think it's only shifted in the way that the way that hip hop became, first it was a fad that was just going to go away. And then suddenly Robin Williams is rapping in Miss Doubtfire. <laughs> and if you were a hip hop fan, <laughs> when Mrs. Doubtfire came out, you were like, what the hell is this right here? <laughs> I don't have a problem with the dude in the dress. That's not my problem. But why is he rapping? Okay. I mean... I'm going to get with this, you know, and we we sort of did this lean, uneasy lean into something that previously had been condemned by those people. Those people begin to co-opt those those things. And I believe that fandom is at a point where it's attempting to be co-opted because people wish to market to the to the base of what fandom is. I believe that's the change. And that's why you're hearing so much about it. And fandom operates like a disenfranchised group because these people seem to have conveniently forgotten that we were the people on the evening news that they were talking about were the freaks dressed up like costumes downtown. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's been a lot of shaming that has gone on yeah. with the fan community. And so the community isn't about that. The community is actually about inclusion. And so it's in some ways, though it has its flame wars, it has its fights, it... It's one of those communities where people come to your rescue when somebody says something messed up. Whereas sometimes in the outside world, uh, it, that doesn't necessarily happen in the same way. It's a, it's a tricky community and it's by all means, it's not perfect, but you know, it does have social justice warriors. It's a, it's a special community. And so I've been a part of that community for a long time because I was a nerdy blackhead. <laughs> it wasn't like I fit into the 90s idea of what you were supposed <laughs> to be. I mean, I wasn't in Boys in the Hood or Minister Society. <laughs> I didn't fit into that. And I think fandom has evolved because of that. And I also think that we're still making those shifts and changes. But until they talk authentically into this community, they will always be outsiders. You've mentioned cosplay twice. Yes. Have you? Yeah, of course. What yes. was your first cosplay? Lando Calrissian. Nice. 
That's such a good one. All right. Uh, so, 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 come on. I've never seen anything <laughs> like that. I was, uh, dude was in Star Wars. There's a black dude in Star Wars. I lost my fucking my mind. I completely couldn't understand what was going on. And then it went on for that. Please, I've cosplayed buckwheat, okay? I've gone. <laughs> you, I mean, I, I have gone. All, I did buckwheat as a soldier with guns because I didn't like the fact that he was kind of buckwheat. So I made him like a... <laughs> <laughs> he was like buckwheat meets war machine. <laughs> I mean, it's it's fun because, you know, it's weird that people would have such a negative opinion of such projection in this world. It is weird. It's almost like everything is connected. You know I wrote the foreword to the academic book on fandom to Paul Booth. And the, I mean, look, I, I'm deeply involved in academic fandom but it's very crazy because nobody knows that. I mean, the academic world knows that, but nobody in Hollywood knows that at all. Like, they, they have no idea. They think I'm just, like, running around going, rah, rah, this ship, that ship. Like, they have no clue what, what I'm actually up to in fandom. Which seems so weird. Like, given that fandom is such a huge market force, you would think that there would be people out there researching academically, like, what do the people want? Not the foggiest of clues. I will wrap it up by saying this. When I realized that people were writing academic papers about what I was doing in fandom and they would send them to me, (laughs) so it's not like I could avoid them, and then I would get a follow-up saying, did you read it? And I realized that I was going to have to read it. I wasn't going to be able to act like I couldn't read it. So then I I would read it, and then I would go, wow. And then try not to insert myself in it in a way that, you know, where the subject is certainly suddenly trying to guide the outcome. So I try and be really mindful of that. I'm like, I'm not, if I'm a subject of study, that's cool, but I'm not trying to guide where you go with it. I'm just trying to do what I'm doing. That is a very, that's the trickiest line of all. We are back with Ricky Whittle from American Gods. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here so early in the morning. Thank you very much. In the morning, my voice kind of gets real husky. I turn a little Barry White. You're going to have to keep that up for like 20 minutes. Can you do that? That's what she said. Thank you very much for having me. You're pretending you cannot believe in impossible things. I thought you were going to say, yeah, like marshmallows. That was, that's my favorite quote so far. Okay. I want to talk about the differing scales of American Gods, because it's a show happening on two very different scales. The Gods are a huge epic that spans thousands of years and every country that you can imagine and millions of people. And then for Shadow, the story is so much smaller because it's him trying to find something to believe in enough to keep going. Mm -hmm. How have you made that work in your performance? It's been interesting because the fan reaction has allowed me to feel like to give myself a little pat on the back because fans of the book have actually seen what I'm trying to do. Mm. Newcomers to the book and to the show who don't know what's going on, number one, you're going to have your minds blown, which is exciting (laughs) for you. And then you'll see the reveal of of Shadow and what I'm working on down the line. But fans of the book have seen the nuances that I'm, I'm trying to pull in that I had to work backwards. You know, when we meet Shadow, he's lost everything in his life. You know, he's even, his name, Neil Gaiman, is incredible. In my, personal, personally and professionally, but um, he's a shadow of his former self. 
He's not who he was. He's also not who we want him to be or who he's going to be. Um, so when we meet him, he's this kind of empty vessel just kind of drifting along. He's lost everything. He didn't know his father. and His mum died when he was young. He traveled around kind of pulling, pulling off small cons and eventually found a home in Laura. And she was his everything. She was his rock. And then when the one thing that you do believe in is taken away, what is there left? And he has nothing left, which made him so vulnerable to Mr. Wednesday because he had nothing else to do. And I think we can all relate to losing something, maybe not to the extent that Shadow has lost everything, but we all know loss or missing, you know, whether we've lost a loved one, a friend, we've broken up with someone, or you just miss someone who's not around, animals, pets, you know, favorite TV show. So we all know that, and I kind of draw upon that. Myself, I traveled a lot as a Royal Air Force kid. My dad was in the, in the Royal Air Force. So I understand Shadow not really knowing a home. And you find someone, you find people who become homes. Fortunately, I've got a beautiful family, uh, my mom, dad, brother, sister, who I could always turn to. Shadow didn't have that. So he had it even worse than me. But you find people and that becomes a home. So that was something I was able to relate to, to Shadow. And then just working with Brian Fuller and, and Michael Green, just kind of bringing the character uh, off the page a little bit more. Because in the book, he's very blasé. He's very kind of, he just goes along with everything. All these fantastical elements are kind of happening. And he doesn't understand yet what's going on, which is... By design, in the show, a lot of fans are kind of confused at the moment who don't know the book. You're meant to, because once Shadow understands and starts to figure things out, the audience will. You know, in, in this day and age, everyone kind of wants to know everything all at once. Mm. We're smarter than that, and our audience is smarter than that. So we're not going to give you everything. We're going to make you learn as Shadow learns. So it's a, it's a lot of fun, and fans can see, you know, the, the differences between Shadow and in, in the show and, and in the book, and how I've made him... Brian, Michael, David Slade as well, who directed the first three episodes, have made him more vocal. He's more anxious. He's a bit more scared. Um, he shows a little bit more kind of energy, although he's still the stoic, observant, you know, protagonist that, that's kind of just being buffeted along. He's definitely a different kind of animal to the book, and, and fans of the book have, have really seen what we've worked on, and, and they seem to be responding really well. So I'm really excited by, uh, by that reaction. There seems to be a lot of tension that comes from the skepticism. Like, it's not just a character trait. It's like, it's a narrative element. He is pulling against everything else that is happening. He's the one person in the whole show who's got no idea what's going on. <laughs> Everyone seems to be in on something. And, you know, he's, he's straight out of prison. He's got no idea what's going on. And because he's not, he's not a dumb guy, he's, uh, and that's how Neil Gaiman built him. He's, he's not just a big, dumb jock, no. a big, dumb ex-con. He's an intelligent guy, and in intelligence, when things kind of happen around you that are slightly miraculous, unbelievable, you, you go for a logical answer, and you turn to, was I high in the limo when I met Tech Boy? You know, did I imagine seeing this? Is Laura really there? Did she fake her death? Is she a zombie? Is she, I mean, why is Laura sat on my bed? What's Shadow's reaction going to be? It's probably going to be logical because why would you? Why would anyone believe that someone can come back from the dead? You know, it's he's going to pull and push against everything. So everything that Wednesday's trying to tell him, the only thing he believed in was love, and that was taken from him. You know, so as he said in the car in in episode three, he he believed that mm, out of love, but that was the one thing we've ever heard him say that he believes in. When everyone's kind of pushing you one way, I think it's human nature to kind of resist a, a little bit. That's his journey. It's that kind of struggle. And again, as a logical man, instead of believing what's in front of his eyes and everything that's going on around him, he starts to think that maybe he's just losing his mind. You know, he's, he's well read. So he's read that 
ex-cons when released from prison can go a little crazy. He's been confined for three years with just a room. You get an hour out every day to go and work out. You've got this routine and then all of a sudden you come out and everything's kind of going on around you. Sometimes it's a bit too much, you know, it's, it's overstimulation and, and it can kind of frazzle the mind. So he's kind of fighting with, with his inner self. You know, is, as Wednesday said, is he crazy or is the world crazy? And I think it's easier to believe that he's just going crazy than believe what's actually going on around him. Which I think is really interesting. This isn't the first time that Brian Fuller has had a show where one of the main characters is struggling, where a bunch of horrors are happening around him. And definitely there are a lot of horror elements to American mm-hmm. Gods. There's what I imagine is 800 million buckets of blood, approximately? Nine. Nine, okay, Nine. thank you. Yes, and that was just thrown in my face. Uh, there's more around the show. I did wonder at one point if you walk in sometimes and it's just giant buckets and you're like, all right, like it's just one of those days, fine. To be fair, in the, in the field when, when Shadow was being strung up and then all of a sudden the blood kind of went everywhere, they didn't hit me with that until I was actually already kind of strung up and on the floor and they're like, right, so we're going to throw stuff at you. Do you mind? I was like... It's four o'clock in the morning. Um, I'm freezing cold in Canada. Let's, let's just do it. I've been shooting 18 hours. Why not? But we don't, we don't care. You know, you get passionate about a project and then you don't care because you know the, the end result's going to be fantastic. And the clever thing that Brian and Michael have done with this show and, and David Slade early on and then other directors throughout the show is they've taken away the, the ooh effect of blood. The blood that you see kind of splattered around because there's so much of it, it's not so hideous and gut-wrenching it's more artistic so when you see the vikings in the very first episode and there's blood people being cut in half it's more awe and wow that's crazy instead of oh that's that's disgusting you know i'm squeamish myself if i watch documentaries on 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 surgery and things like that i i kind of squeamish i'm squeamish i'll look away a little bit why are you watching documentaries on surgery if you're squeamish i've had a lot of i've had a lot of surgeries and i get fascinated like i'm my only fear in the whole wide world is great white sharks but I will watch every documentary on them because I find them fascinating. But yeah, and it's the same with, with blood. I mean, yes, car, car crash, rubbernecking. You know, when you see a, uh, an accident, you, you've got to kind of have a little look. If you see someone arguing, you, you know, you want to have a little look. But yeah, so, so by using so much blood and, and the tone that we've used in the show, I feel that the gore has kind of become very artistic and very kind of beautiful to watch. The way it kind of flows across the screen and out of people. And, you know, by design, it's become a very artistic kind of way of shooting that I've not seen in any other show uh, on television or even in film. It definitely removes the horror element from the violence, I think. I think the real horror element of the show is right now the audience sympathizing with Shadow because we know that everything that he's seeing is real, but he doesn't. And Mm -hmm. so he's struggling to hold on to his mind. And I think that that's the frightening part. I think that's that's horrifying to... Like I say, because he's intelligent. And I think that's one huge fear is that you no longer know what's real and what's not. And you can't believe what's in front of your eyes. And, you know, it's it, I guess it's like for, for an athlete who's losing their emotions, you know, they're starting to uh, make me feel a bit of paralysis or they lose uh, a limb or something. All of a sudden they don't feel as powerful. You know, that's what they're known for, athletes. It's for being athletic, for running, jumping, throwing, whatever it is. And for Shadow, he's... He's a very intelligent man, and, and for someone to start feeling like they're, they're losing their mind, is, is, it's, it's frightening because there's no real coming back from that. You know, we don't know how the mind works as it is, so if you start to lose it and it starts to unravel, how do you kind of get that back? It's a frightening situation for, for Shadow, and he's got no one to turn to. There's also so much of Brian Fuller's stylist to do giant landscape shots and then very intense sensory shots. Mm-hmm. So we see things like... 
eight million, nine million buckets of blood, and then one pen going into a well of ink. That's a beautiful shot. But none of those have been for Shadow or from Shadow. He is the only character who is cut off from that level of the sensory world in the show. Again, Brian Full and Michael Green, it is genius the way they've shot this. It gets you into the mind of Shadow Moon, that he is just not a part of this world. Everyone else is in on it, and the audience can kind of see what's going on all around him, and Shadow's just so cut off, he's got to work it out on his own. And we've got a fantastic director in Chris Byrne who worked the second unit and used to do all the inserts, all the tight shots, all these moments that are so beautifully done. And it brings the audience into the screen. And it's something that I've now looked for in other film and TV. And now I feel like I'm missing out. So I'll be watching a, a, a movie or, or a show and, and I'll, I'll be watching and I'll, go, and I'll light a cigarette and I'll be like, and they stay, they stay wide. I'm like, no, I want to see that. I want to get in there tight. Why, why would you not use that? But that's the way we've been shooting. And, and it's something that I think really brings the audience in because when someone lights a, like, like when someone lights a cigarette or something, you're gonna go boom, straight right in there close to kind of feel like you're in it. Like when I watch movies and, and t other shows, I feel like I'm just watching it on the screen and, and I still love them. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I love, love, it's my escape uh, to watch other shows and, and, and movies. But I feel like I'm watching it. With American Gods, I feel like I'm, with those inserts, I feel like I'm in it. You know, so when you see Zariah cooking up and, you know, we're seeing, we're, we're in the pot and we're stirring around with all the lentils and things like that, you know, it's, you know, you feel like you're actually inside the screen and, and that's, uh, that's by design from, from David Slade, Brian Fuller, uh, Michael Green. It's, it's a very unique way of shooting and, you know, a very clever way of influencing an audience without them knowing by bringing them in, by cutting shadow off. And it's great perception from you to actually notice it. But yeah, that's something that I'm learning all the time is, is all these little things. The, the sound team as well that we have on the show. If you've got a really good sound system in your TV, you should watch American Gods very loud because there are so many clues in the sound alone. And it's the same with the music. There's so much in there. There's so much in the sounds. It's, it's just so meticulous. And I used to go in and, and do certain things uh, in the office, ADR and, and all these kind of things. And I used to sit there and watch how meticulously they would work through a moment and they keep going back and back over like a two second moment, just going just to make sure it's right. And they're saying this little sound needs to be two seconds sooner. And you're like, why? It's like, because you'll see. And, and then you're like, oh, I get it. Oh, smart, clever. You've done this before. Everyone keeps raving about the acting, about the way it's shot, the way it looks so beautiful. And there's so many Easter eggs and clues all over the place, but you will not have a clue until the end of the very end of the show. You go back and rewatch stuff every time. I've watched the first episode 15 times and I'm still seeing stuff. I've read the script, I know the show, I'm in the show. And I'm still learning stuff when I, when I, uh, when I watch the episode. So it's a lot of fun, I'm, I'm, glad, uh, I'm glad you noticed. Let's talk about two characters where when they are talking, the rest of the world falls away, Shadow and Mr. Wednesday. I think the rest of the world falls away for Shadow because Wednesday won't shut up. And that's kind of the charm of Mr. Wednesday. You've kind of got this guy that prods and pokes and manipulates and pisses off Shadow. But just as he's kind of got to his brewing point, he'll offer him a little bit of honey and go, I'm just a crazy old man. So he just has no idea how to take him. And, and you can see Shadow just constantly trying to work, work him out. And that's one of the toughest things I had to do as Shadow was, Neil Gaiman writes these incredible inner monologues. And we don't have Shadow say those. And we don't have narrative over the top, you know. So 
I have to play these beautiful, long, sweeping pieces that Neil Gaiman's wrote just in my, in my actions, in my head, kind of in my eyes. I, I can't allow Shadow to not be engaged in anything, anything Wednesday says. When, we, when people talk, there are times you just switch off. When, if, you're, if you're speaking to people, sometimes you start thinking about the shopping. You think about, I'm hungry, I'm tired, what am I doing later on? Um, ah, I forgot milk. You know, you, but you, you, you allowed yourself to drift off. Corbin Burnson, who plays Vulcan, actually spoke to me about that. And he said um, in a scene once in L.A. Law, he was watching two lawyers kind of speak. And, and he was kind of going like that, you know, engaged in everything. And the actor next to him, who was more uh, mature, said, what are you doing? And he went, I'm just paying attention. He went, what are you doing later on? And I was like, oh, I'm just going to drive around. He's like, you're going to have some sex? And he was like, I don't know. Yeah, probably. He goes, think about that. And he's like, what? He's like, why are you paying attention over there? That doesn't concern you. You don't always have to be engaged, which was, is what we do because we're not always engaged in life. But with Shadow, he has to be engaged. And so when Wednesday speaks, the great thing about Wednesday is that he's so kind of up and down. And so one minute I think, you know, you're really rude and you're crass and you're disgusting. And then I'm like, but you're kind of funny and you're goofy. Are you a dirty old man? Are you hitting on me? You know, he, he takes you all over the place, which allows kind of Shadow to be engaged and then influence the audience to kind of love Mr. Wednesday more because just as he starts to annoy you, Shadow gets amused by him, which allows the audience to kind of be amused by him as well. That kind of twosome is fantastic. And Ian McShane's been a lot of fun. You know, we're both from the same area, both British guys uh, from Manchester. We hit it off straight away and that chemistry kind of translates onto screen, fortunately. And I love the reaction that everyone's kind of loving that chemistry, that kind of dynamic of just Shadow not knowing what the hell's going on. Apparently I've got a great WTF face, uh, a what the face. Um, but it's great because as an actor, you're reacting to the incredible actors around you. And he is one of them. You know, reacting to Ian McShane is very easy because he just gives you these crazy performances. And it's the best education an actor could ever have, Ian McShane. I work with most of the cast, whereas Ian really only works with myself. So I just get to see him kind of do so much it's an honor to kind of work alongside a, a man I grew up watching and idolizing. I even had to fly my mom out to Toronto to meet him. Did you really? I didn't have to, but I, I did if I wanted my mom to love me. Because yeah. I fly her out to LA to come and see me for a birthday every year and, or if anything's going on. And as soon as she found out Ian was cast, uh, I had to fly her to Toronto. Not to see the show, not to see me, but to uh, meet Ian. Yeah, he's Lovejoy uh, in her eyes, and so she, she, she had to meet him. And Ian was lovely to her. Michael Green, actually, a producer, flew from L.A. to Toronto to meet my mum because they were tweeting each other online. And, uh, but that's how lovely that man is. He's not only the incredible producer, showrunner of American Gods. He, he, he wrote uh, Logan, Alien, the new Alien film, Blade Runner. I mean, this guy's a genius, but he's a beautiful man as well, like flying all the way to Toronto just to meet my mum. This show's got legs to go for, for, for numerous years and it's, it's down to the kind of the love and support and the passion that everyone's got behind this project. And I feel very fortunate to be a part of it. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about the TV that we basically just can't shut up about. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm your host. I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor and we'll be back for the next three weeks after each new episode airs. So keep watching American Gods and keep listening and see you next time.